Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And this is the tech news for Thursday, August 5th, 2021. We've got a lot of it, including some really crazy quantum physics news that I am going to do my best to try and and, uh, impart onto you, dear listener. But let's get started with some Facebook stories, because I, I just can't seem to go an episode without talking about Facebook. So one of these stories is likely not going to be a surprise to any of you listeners at all. And that's the fact that many law enforcement agencies are crawling on social networking sites to collect images of people and use those images for the purposes of facial recognition systems. The MLive site, which covers news in Michigan here in the United States, published an article this morning about this, quoting Eric Goldman of the High Tech Law Institute at Santa Clara University. And Goldman said that if you have a public social networking account, such as a a Facebook account that posts publicly, it stands to reason that a lot of different people and organizations have grabbed your photos at some point because they are all publicly available. Publicly available information is, you know, public, so anyone can see it. And we've seen numerous groups use software to crawl through enormous platforms to pull down mountains of data for the purposes of identification and analysis. And those are acts that platforms frequently resist for a variety of reasons. Like there's uh, an AI platform that has done this that has gotten in trouble for it in the past because of that. Uh, I should also add that while I say if you post publicly, that's not even the full picture, obviously, right? Like, let's say you don't even have a Facebook profile. You could be in photos that your friends take, right? And those photos might be on their their profiles and they might be public, which means that those photos can be captured and, and used for facial recognition purposes. So you don't even have to be involved in this. You have no say at that point, if someone is posting your photo publicly, then it's fair game for a lot of these organizations, at least as far as they're concerned. Now, we've also seen that many facial recognition systems have an element of bias in them with a tendency to be less accurate for people of color. And that might not sound you know, terrible, like, oh, it's less accurate. But then you figure that a less accurate system means that sometimes a person could be inaccurately identified as, say, a person of interest in a legal case. And then you can really see how it does become a problem. Such a misidentification can lead, in a best-case scenario, it can lead to an inconvenience. That's a best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario ends up being incredibly harmful and disruptive. I mean, that could even include wrongful arrests, which have happened as a result of facial recognition software mistakenly identifying someone as someone else. And the fact that this disproportionately harms specific communities like communities of color, that's a real issue. Now, as the Peace and MLive points out, there have been documented cases of police action based off incorrect facial recognition analysis already in Michigan. There's a growing resistance to the use of this technology 
Uh, there's been a lot more pressure on local and federal governments to outlaw its use. There's also been pressure on companies to not make that technology available to law enforcement agencies. And this ties in with several other stories that are unfolding around the world, many of which tap into this issue of wanting to lean on technology in order to solve a particularly difficult social problem. But the issue is that, in some cases, the technology isn't necessarily reliable enough to depend upon. So I may have to do a full episode dedicated to that concept, because there are a lot of different factors in play here, right? There's a genuine desire to right a social wrong or to prevent a particular social problem from happening. There's a perception that the technology could be the solution to this. And then there's the reality of technology that may not be reliable enough for us to really leverage it that way. Or else we have these exceptions pop up that then affect innocent people in harmful ways. Moving on, The Guardian published an article about how the fossil fuel industry was able to leverage Facebook to push climate misinformation. The article cites a group called Influence Map, which is based in London, uh, which uncovered this issue. Influence Map said that there was an increase in advertising by fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil in 2020 during the election season, with the campaign specifically creating a misinformation narrative to shape the conversation around climate change and fossil fuel policies that were meant to address that problem. Further, Influence Map alleges that this campaign violated Facebook's own policies with regard to false advertising, and yet Facebook did not remove or label these posts as being misleading, which allowed those views to really take hold within certain communities in Facebook. The organization also found something that a lot of people have observed over the years, that the messaging around conservation and, you know, having an impact on climate change really was shifting the focus to the individual rather than to companies and industries. In other words, putting the burden of addressing climate change solely on individual people rather than both on people and on corporations. Uh, so this is kind of the message of turn off the lights after you leave a room, like, or only you can prevent forest fires kind of approach, rather than place regulations or on or otherwise tax companies that are consuming vast amounts of electricity, right? Like, that would be the other message. Uh, we frequently see this kind of personalized approach to messaging. Uh, and yeah, we all do have a part to play here. But when that messaging completely ignores how industry contributes to a large extent to climate change issues, then it becomes misinformation because it's purposefully omitting important details, right? If you don't say, hey, the transportation industry ends up being a massive contributor to carbon emissions, and you're instead saying, turn off the lights and don't run stuff when you're not using it, then you allow the major contributing factor to go on unhindered, and it and the problem worsens as a result. So Facebook has received some pretty critical opposition to this trend already, and will likely face even more scrutiny in the future, and it should. I mean, it's it's cashing those checks, right? The, the advertising checks are coming in and Facebook is cashing them, so it does definitely play a part. Oh, and a CNN business story about Influence Maps look into Facebook reveals 
that these fossil fuel ads showed up more than 431 million times for U.S. users in 2020, which is not a bad return on investment for $9.6 million. That was the given amount for that those collective ad campaigns. Now, think about this. A Super Bowl ad, a commercial during the Super Bowl, costs around $5 million for a 30-second spot. And the last Super Bowl had around 96.4 million people watching it. So for a little less than twice the cash, you can get four times the number of views by going through Facebook, which is not a bad deal, right? Meanwhile, the petroleum industry companies have spoken out against the Influence Map study, claiming that these companies are spending a great amount of money on limiting carbon emissions and using carbon sequestration uh, strategies and such, which, you know, could be totally true, but it doesn't change the fact that these companies actively try to undermine climate action. Heck, an Exxon lobbyist essentially spilled the beans on how they do that on video, which then prompted the CEO of Exxon to apologize for it. I'm sure they were sorry that they were caught. <clears throat> and we are not yet done with Facebook. We've got one more Facebook story here. Bloomberg reported yesterday that Facebook has disabled the personal Facebook accounts of some researchers from New York University who have been studying political ads on that platform. Facebook says this group has been using tools like automated tools to scrape Facebook of data, which is going against Facebook's policy. This is kind of alluding to what I was mentioning earlier about facial recognition technologies. You know, Facebook isn't supposed to allow that to happen. Now, the research team saw their project pretty much hamstrung by Facebook. The company deactivated various apps and pages that were associated with this research project, in addition to deactivating those personal pages of the actual team involved. Now, on the face of it, my dander starts to get up on behalf of the research team. However, I have to admit, this story is actually more complicated than that. See, back in 2019, the Federal Trade Commission, or FTC, here in the United States, hit Facebook with a fine of $5 billion. That's billion with a B, which is a princely sum indeed. And the reason for that fine was that the FTC found that Facebook had not done enough to protect users from developers who were relying on Facebook to collect personal information on a large scale. Think of things like Cambridge Analytica. So Facebook has kind of an obligation to push back against groups that are using automated means to collect data off the platform, even if that group has a seemingly good reason for doing so. Facebook requires groups to seek out permission from the company before using those kinds of tools. And this group, you could argue, failed to secure permission. And in fact, Facebook had reached out and given the group a couple of warnings in the past. Now, that being said, Facebook is also under a great deal of scrutiny for how it serves up political ads and how it targets people and how it chooses who gets to see what. So as I said, this is a really complicated issue. The study could call more attention to problems with Facebook's methods of accepting and serving ads to users, which the company would likely want to suppress. It doesn't want those problems to be brought into you know, harsher light. But then Facebook also has this obligation under the FTC, and that at least gives the company a fairly compelling reason to push back. Though one could imagine that this 
issue could be solved if Facebook and the research group could just get that permission to the researchers. But I really doubt that Facebook is eager to do that in this particular case. We have more stories to cover, but before we do that, let's take a quick break. Reuters reports that a ransomware attack targeting more than 1,000 organizations last month might be just the beginning of a trend of attacks on service providers. The attack leveraged vulnerabilities in a management software product from a company called Kaseya, which affected more than 50 managed service provider organizations, or MSPs. Now, an MSP is a company that other companies rely upon to outsource services of some sort, like they could be human resources services or IT services. And that means that the MSP represents a really juicy target for hackers because you could attack a specific company. Let's say that you wanted to target, I don't know, like, like, uh, Intel, you want to target Intel and you want to compromise one of Intel's systems. Well, that's a single target. But let's say you go after an MSP, which could service dozens or hundreds of clients, and Intel happens to be one of them, but it also services all these others. Well, you could disrupt all of those companies by targeting the MSP specifically, right? If they are providing a service to all these companies and you interrupt it, you've affected not just one organization, but potentially hundreds of them. This puts immense pressure on the MSP companies to solve the problem quickly because if all of its customers are depending upon those services and you've got like a hundred important clients, you might be answering calls all day long because you can't get their widgets to work because of a problem with your product. You have a high motivation to fix the issue. That might include paying off an exorbitant ransom. Or worse, the hackers might use the MSPs as a launch point and find a way to use an MSP product to have a supply chain attack and thus infect the MSP's customers as well. So the MSP becomes the entry point and then all of its customers become targets. That multiplies the number of targets that the hackers are able to to actually compromise and potentially multiplies the number of ransoms that they could receive as a result. Reuters states that hacker groups are feverishly researching ways to target MSPs for just that reason, which suggests we should be on the lookout for similar attacks in the future, and it should serve as a warning to all organizations, MSP and otherwise, to be extra cautious with security. Moving on, the state of Massachusetts is seeing a group called the Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work lobby to have a special ballot introduced that would create some special exemptions for companies like Uber and Lyft to be largely excluded from the restrictions and regulations of the state's labor laws. And you will be shocked, shocked, I tell you, to learn that Uber and Lyft run this special interest group, whose name makes it sound like it's a worker advocacy organization. The companies have actually done this before. In fact, they did so successfully in California by introducing a measure called Proposition 22, which effectively excluded them and several other gig economy companies from having to abide by the laws that govern other businesses in the state of California. 
And it looks like the companies are going to spend a lot of money in Massachusetts to fight the same sort of battle there. Whether that works or not remains to be seen, because uh, generally speaking, there's a growing awareness regarding the company's efforts to avoid things like acknowledging that drivers are, in fact, employees, as opposed to you know contracted freelancers, and so on. But we'll have to watch to see how this plays out, because we have to keep in mind, these companies already have a track record for selling a political message effectively to the public, and they might do it again. And now, for the latest of, if misogyny in the workplace is such a problem, why don't more women come forward, department? Well, to you, I submit the story of Ashley Giovic, a program manager at Apple's engineering department. According to The Verge, Giovic found herself put on administrative leave indefinitely. In fact, she actually requested that, uh, but we'll get to that. After she tweeted about how she found Apple to be a hostile work environment, and one that tolerates sexism within the workplace. She had already gone through internal systems numerous times in order to address this. So tweeting this out was kind of like, you know, the, the fact that she wasn't seeing progress being made within the company. And when you see a company essentially sideline someone after they come forward with, uh, you know, these, these issues, that's really one of the reasons why more women don't come forward because they they've been intimidated. They've seen time and time again that the people who speak out end up getting sidelined. Gilvik tweeted, quote, so following raising concerns to hashtag Apple about hashtag sexism, hashtag hostile work environment and hashtag unsafe work conditions. I'm now on indefinite paid administrative leave per hashtag Apple employee relations while they investigate my concerns. This seems to include me not using Apple's internal slack, end quote. Govic also said that the company offered to provide her medical leave rather than address the underlying issues, which is kind of like saying, hey, I know Pete in accounting keeps stabbing you, but we've got these band-aids so you can patch yourself up every time it happens rather than, you know, going to arrest Pete from accounting. Apple is, of course, just one of dozens of companies currently being called to reckon with its culture. And once again, it it's stories like these that feed into that feeling that human resources isn't there to protect the humans who work for the company, but rather to protect the company. Let us now segue over to a moment I'd like to call We Live in the Future which can sometimes be awe-inspiring and sometimes terrifying. We'll start with something terrifying. Apparently, the Pentagon is making use of an AI application to analyze real-time information in an effort to predict what the enemy will do next, with the Pentagon claiming that the AI can let them see, quote, days in advance, end quote, as a result. Makes me think of the precogs in Minority Report, except instead of being put to use in law enforcement to predict crime, they are being put in military use to predict what the enemy is going to do in any given situation. And it also makes me think of Grand Admiral Thrawn in the Star Wars Extended Universe. He could look at a culture's work of art and figure out what that culture, how they would react, you know, to any given situation, which is pretty far-fetched. But 
Using AI to analyze what's going on within a specific region and then make a strategic decision seems like it's a little bit less fantastical, right? I mean, you could argue that this is just an extremely much more complicated version of a war game, like a simulated war game. The AI is part of the Global Information Dominance Experiment, or G-I-D-E. And boy, that name is kind of scary. Obviously, the goal is to predict what an enemy might do in order so that we could prepare against that very move, potentially protecting the lives of soldiers and civilians in the process and maximizing the effectiveness of an armed presence in any given region. We might dissuade someone from doing something. For example, if the the analysis says, hey, based upon historical data, such and such country is likely to launch a submarine from this port in the next two days, if you build up a show of force around that area, then you might dissuade them from doing that, that kind of thing. Well, uh, the Pentagon points out that this is work that people have actually been doing for years by analyzing data in search of patterns and trying to make predictions. But obviously, it took a long time in the past. So we are now in an era where we can collect and more importantly, analyze mountains of information rapidly so we can find those patterns much more quickly and then act on that information. Of course, this requires a very careful design of the algorithm and it's always possible for an algorithm to mistake noise for a meaningful pattern. But that's why this initiative is, is in a testing phase. And it concerns some critics of artificial intelligence in use with you know, military applications because they see it as a potential starting point for a slippery slope in which AI ends up not just pointing out possible enemy decisions as a result of what's going on in the world, but then going on to potentially making life or death decisions of its own and then potentially even getting to the point where it enacts those decisions without human oversight, because obviously human oversight slows things down. So if you have really powerful AI making all the decisions and you have at least assumed that the AI is infallible, you rely on the AI. We're a ways off from that sort of dystopian future, but being wary of that eventuality is probably not a bad idea. So while you could argue that it's premature to worry about that kind of stuff. The counter to that is, well, if we don't bring it, bring it up now, we could see this evolve slowly enough where it happens before we were even aware of it. I've got a couple more stories to tell, but before we get to that, let's take another break. Okay, it is time my friends. And by time, I mean it's time to talk about time crystals, which, full disclosure, I did not even know were a thing before this morning. Apparently, time crystals are a phase of matter, kind of like, you know, how gas is a phase of matter, solids, liquids, plasmas, and that the most likely context we would observe such a thing as a time crystal is on the quantum level. So, you know, very, 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 very small, like smaller than Ant-Man small. Some Google scientists have written a paper that still has to go through the peer review process, so we can't just assume that they got everything right. But that paper claims that they have found a way to use quantum computers to study time crystals. 
which is pretty much the most science fiction sentence I think I could say today. But let's break this down a bit because that's just word salad, right? Unless we understand what we're talking about. Quantum computers are very complicated machines that only somewhat resemble classic computers. And they are very delicate as well. They have this tendency toward decoherence, which means that your quantum computer kind of breaks down and becomes a very low-powered classical computer as a result. So with a traditional computer, we talk about information in terms of the basic unit of a bit or a binary digit, which can either be a zero or a one. Quantum computers are different. They have a qubit as the basic unit of information, and a qubit or a quantum bit can kind of sort of be both a zero and a one at the same time and every value in between. Technically, this is a, 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 a thing called superposition. Uh, there's also the issue of entanglement, but we're not going to get into all that. That would require a full episode by itself. But the important thing with quantum computers is that with the proper design of algorithms, that is processes that are specifically engineered to take advantage of these quantum properties, computer scientists could use these quantum computers to solve particularly difficult problems. Now, a quantum computer would not be much good for your classic computer processes. So in other words, you wouldn't want these as a gaming rig so you could play Overwatch on it or something. But quantum computers would be really good at tackling certain subsets of computational problems that would tie up a classical computer for thousands of years or more. So that's quantum computers from a very, very high level. All right, what about time crystals? Well, here we got to talk about entropy. So you can kind of think of entropy as the natural tendency for stuff in the universe to kind of fall apart or more accurately to go from more ordered to more disordered. So let's say you've got a big room and you've subdivided this big room with a removable panel, like it completely bisects the room in half. And the panel has like heavy thermal insulation and you make one side of that room really hot and you make the other side of the room that's on the opposite end of this panel, like on the opposite side of the panel, you make that side really cold. So you've got effectively two rooms here, right? You've got one that's really hot, one's really cold. Then you remove the panel. Well, what happens? Well, we would actually see these temperatures mix, right? We would see these, the molecules from the cold side and the molecules from the hot side would intermingle and eventually the room would reach an equilibrium temperature. So you would not have one side of the room just stay hot and the other side just stay cold, in other words. that Those ordered systems would break down and you would have this uh, entropy take effect unless the room itself was a time crystal. In that case, a time crystal can get stuck in two different high-energy configurations. So in our example, we would say, all right, well, that means hot and cold in this case, and then a time crystal would switch back and forth never actually moving toward equilibrium. So we would have a room that at times would be very hot and at other times would be very cold or would have hot and cold on specific sides and then hot and cold on opposite sides. Now, I can't 
pretend to really understand this, because it flies in the face of the second law of thermodynamics. But apparently it's a thing, and Google says it can use its quantum computing systems to study time crystals further. As it stands, there's no real application for time crystals that anyone has proposed, but it would mean learning more about how our universe works, and whether there really is a big exception to an otherwise extremely well-established rule, that being the second law of thermodynamics. Which, again, blows my mind. Finally, something that doesn't blow my mind nearly as much, but still is really cool, Sony introduced a new VR technology for the PS5 to developers this week. It's kind of a pitch to developers to say, we've got this hardware coming out, we want you to make stuff for it. The headsets will have OLED screens with 2000 by 2040 resolution per eye, which is pretty darn incredible. They will also have a 110 degree field of view, which is an improvement over the current PSVR system that's on the market. They, these systems might also support HDR, that's high dynamic range, that is a technology that can enable more vibrant colors to be displayed through greater dynamics between those colors and brightness or luminosity. The headset is said to also have some haptic feedback built in, that is, systems that provide a tactile or touch-based feedback system. So for example, you might feel a slight vibration through the headset as you use a controller to move around a virtual environment, the idea being that you're kind of tricking your brain into thinking you're actually walking around this virtual space while you are in reality physically standing still inside your living room, for example. And hopefully this would cut down on the motion sickness that some folks like me experience when they are using VR sets. There's also talk of technology that will detect where a user is looking while they are wearing the headset, which can be useful because developers could build beefier VR experiences and really lean on this, because anything you're looking at directly would need to be distinct and in high resolution. So that's where it would need to really look good. But the stuff at the periphery of your vision could be a bit more hazy, and you wouldn't notice because that's not the way humans focus, right? And that could cut down on the work that the PlayStation 5 would have to do in order to provide whatever this experience is, that really just means that developers can have a bit more elbow room to really push the hardware to its limit. And Sony is reaching out to some big AAA studios, essentially saying, hey, why don't you know, make something really cool for this? So we've seen time and again that, you know, hardware can be really exciting, but unless there's a strong software library to go with that hardware, it doesn't tend to have very much staying power, it tends to fade into obscurity. And VR has always had an issue when it comes to building out a really diverse, compelling library of experiences. And of course, there's a pretty good reason for that. VR tends to be pretty expensive. And my guess, this new headset is going to be no different. I'm guessing it's going to be a pretty expensive piece of equipment. And when something is expensive, that means by nature, fewer people can afford to buy the product which means that developers are looking at a smaller pool of potential customers. And that means that whatever return they're going to get from selling something that runs on that platform is going to be relatively smaller than it would be for, you know, a more widely adopted platform. So if you're a game studio, you might have yourself saying, so 
do we pour a hundred million bucks into developing this game that is going to target 10% of the PS5 owners? That's a number I'm just kind of pulling out of thin air, by the way. Or do we instead pour 100 million bucks developing a more traditional style console game and target all of the PS5 owners? And you can see how this situation becomes a vicious cycle, right? Some folks will resist buying into VR because they see there's a lack of content. And then developers are reluctant to make content because there's a lack of VR owners out there. But maybe this will be the device to really break that open for Sony. Rumor is that the hardware will get a reveal sometime early next year, so we won't have to wait too long to learn more. And that's it. That's all the news that I have for you guys today, Thursday, August 5th, 2021. I hope you are all well. I'm on the mend myself, so each day is going to get better. That's my hope anyway. If you have suggestions for topics I should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW, and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 